I'm Elena. Hi, and I'm Soraya. And you're listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoiler-full podcast where we read books by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. And welcome to the last episode of Season 2! Today we are discussing The Perishing, a novel by Natasha Dion. This is the story of Lou slash Sarah, an immortal that is reborn in Los Angeles in the 1930s. We follow a split narrative with Lou finding her footing in the changing civic landscape of L.A. and Sarah in the 22nd century musing on the nature of being human from a prison cell. As Lou is struggling to become a Black reporter in her community, she encounters others who are like her and whom she remembers from lives past. But before we go any further, I want to introduce you to my co-host today, Soraya Emanuel. Soraya, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes. So I am the host of Book Solid Podcast, which is like a book review slash book club podcast. And we are currently in the throes of season three. So if you want to check us out, we do mostly like contemporary fiction, um, mystery thrillers, fantasy. We're, we're kind of diversifying. So there's a little bit of everything right now. Um, I'm not sure exactly when this episode will go up, so I don't know how deep into season three that will be. But as of right now, our first episode on seven days of June, or as of the time of this recording, it's our first episode on seven days in June is live. So you can find us on Instagram at Book Solid Podcast. We also have a YouTube, uh, Discord, Facebook, everything as at Book Solid Podcast. And I'm sure I can give a link <laughs> that will yeah. be in the in the show notes for definitely this. and i can confidently say that before by the time this episode is published you will have heard me on soraya's podcast book solid yes as we discuss several people are typing by calvin kasulki yeah, yep i think yes that's right. yes i think that's right <laughs> yes so this is basically our second crossover episode and, and shameless plug, we also have a podcast together. <laughs> um, if you are a Gilmore Girls stan like we are, it's called Women of Questionable Morals. And it's a great time. We just dive into different themes from the show, um, give our thoughts and opinions. So you should definitely go check that out and give that a follow as well. There are many ways you can listen to our beautiful voices. <laughs> there, Yeah, there is no shortage of us out on the internet. That's for sure. So I guess we said we would do this, so I guess we have to do this now. Um, what are your thoughts on the perishing? Well, okay. Um, <laughs> I feel kind of bad because uh, when we you know, decided we wanted to be guests on each other's shows, Elena provided me with some options for book solid and I provided her with some options for bookshelf remix and I recommended this book and it just wasn't what I thought or hoped it would be I like to be honest if we weren't doing this episode together I I probably wouldn't have finished it I just Same. I couldn't get connected to the characters of the story like when you read the synopsis it sounds so interesting and I think the genre it's it's labeled as is um, speculative fiction. And yeah, mm -hmm. it just seemed so interesting and enticing and it fell flat ultimately. And, you know, we can get into our reasons why I don't want to like go off from the outset. But yeah, I, 
it just wasn't what I had hoped it would be. I agree. I mean, there were so many elements or ingredients that should have made me love this book. Like the idea of it be following a black woman protagonist in the 1930s in Los Angeles, which is a setting I don't know much about. The fact that we were engaging with this kind of idea of immortality. And so we have the possibility of having a fish out of water situation because every time immortals are reborn they don't automatically remember everything about their past lives but uh, I just I could not get into this book part of it is the structure so it flips back and forth between these two narratives and at the beginning of the book it's basically every chapter and sometimes chapters are two pages long So you don't have any time to like invest in a character and the one set in the future honestly felt like word salad Thank you. Like I could not understand. Thank you. I felt like it was trying to be really deep and meaningful and I just every time a chapter from Sarah's perspective ended I was just like what? Like (laughs) I had no idea what she was trying to say and I felt zero connection to her like at all and I, I just I didn't even enjoy like anytime it, I was listening to it on audiobook partially and anytime we got to like Sarah I was like oh can we just get through this and get back to Lou because that's at least somewhat able to hold my attention exactly I mean with Sarah it was just kind of oh let's talk about what it means to be black or what it means to I don't know live in a society that others people and I was like okay are you giving a kind of TED talk like I don't understand but also there's this hint of oh Sarah killed someone and she's in prison for murder we never find out Um, but that never actually gets explained yeah Yeah. and that's the thing too is like the stuff that Sarah's talking about like I did like it the topics in and of themselves are very interesting like and I feel like Lou's character did a much better job of like explaining or exploring what it is to be a black woman in America or be black in America period. And that's, if I have to like give my my positives about the book, that was probably the aspect I enjoyed the most because some of the things that the author wrote about, I was like, wow, that is like that, that hits deeply. Like that's a perfect summary or Mm -hmm. just the way she explained it. I felt like a lot of it was written very well in that regard. And, you know, Lou is kind of coming of age in Los Angeles Granted, it's the 1930s, but like I also like I went to college. I grew up in San Diego, but I went to college in LA, and I you know lived in LA after I graduated and worked there. And so like I also had this like coming of age in Los Angeles as a black woman, and so there were a lot of aspects that I could relate to in that sense. So that was probably the most enjoyable part for me is getting to see a lot of my own feelings and experiences like reflected back at me. But it felt like the like Sarah's character. I don't want to say she was like pretentious because I don't think I don't think that's necessarily what it was, but it just came off like it was trying to be something and it was falling short of whatever it was trying to be or do, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and it was hard for me because I had just come off of listening to the audiobook of On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean mm-hmm. Vuong. And Ocean Vuong is primarily a poet. And so his novel is like inspired heavily by his own life and it's very poetic and he engages with themes of 
you know, racism and homophobia and, but it's so well done. And so you can see how it's possible to talk about these important topics and have a way that hits really close to home. But I found that this book left me cold. And again, I think there might have been a way that that could have been interesting, a kind of unsettled uncanniness of seeing this world from the outside and kind of feeling like, yes, these are human beings, but I also cannot connect to them. That could have potentially been interesting, but I felt that, yeah, we didn't really get to see Lou's inner life all that much. And Sarah was just confusing. And I I kept also thinking that Dion, the author, had done a lot of research. And this was a kind of a book of like, let me show you the research I've done. Which makes me feel this book would have been a better nonfiction mm. book. I would have totally read like a nonfiction book that follows like a black female reporter in the 1930s in LA. And I would have loved to learn everything we learn about like route 66 that I had no idea about, like all the black neighborhoods that were being displaced, the racial tensions that were happening there that obviously have such strong parallels to what's happening today. I feel like all of that was really interesting information, but because it was put, it was kind of shoehorn in this novel being like, look at me. I did all the Yeah. Research. Like I think I wrote in my notes that the book is trying to do too much. It's trying to be too much. And so therefore all the things it's trying to do are not being done well because the, the, the focus is, is everywhere. Like it needs to kind of just hone in on maybe one or two things and like explore that really well. Because I do think that she could write a really great story like I don't think this is like any lack of talent on her part um I just feel like it was trying to be too many things and the book itself didn't quite know what it was and one of my biggest complaints about it is you know you read the synopsis for the book and it says you know she she lands in 1930s Los Angeles and she meets a man who she realizes she's been drawing for you know months or however long it's been and that it makes it seem like that's going to be a huge part of the book. Like, you know, she meets this man for the first time because she's been drawing his face and dreaming of his face for who knows how long. Like, ooh, what, what's going on there? She does not meet him until chapter 17, you guys. Like, 17. So, and the book, I think, has 30 chapters. So, <laughs> this why is it even on the flap of the book if it's not even that important? And then he also doesn't even really matter in the scope of the story that much. He does not. So the cover of the book like makes it seem like there's going to be some romance and some kind of like time-separated, love-torn people. And it just doesn't happen. Like we have a brief resolution at the end of like, oh yeah, I guess we were soulmates in our previous lives, but we can't be together in this life. It's just not meant to be. And I was like, what are you trying... Why did you have this character... And also we keep having some weird flashbacks to Lou slash Sarah when like in the 19, like 1890s in Berlin and stuff. And again, we have so many like glimpses without any depth. They're like, wouldn't it be cool to look at what it would it be like to like date an artist in Berlin? And in like, the what was the point century? of um, first grandpa? Like there's that whole aside <gasps> in the beginning about first grandpa and how she believes that her mom in that life killed him. 
And then that never comes up again. Like, I just, I kind of expected all of these stories to converge somehow or for them to be meaningful to the plot. And my AP English teacher said something to me in high school that I think about all the time when I'm reading books or consuming any form of media, really. And I'm, sh- I don't, I don't think he came up with this quote. He was quoting someone else, but I don't know who the original person is. But basically, he was saying like, when you're writing, don't put a gun on the mantle in the first act that you're not going to shoot by the third or something like that. And this book had a lot of that. Like, you can't just bring something yes. up and then have it not matter to the story at all. Like, everything you do should be very purposeful and have a point, you know, and this just felt like there was a lot of, including having red yeah. herrings. Like I would be okay if something were a red herring where you're like, Oh, I thought this would be really important, but then it wasn't. But in this case, it was, as you say, like we just put props, we place them there. We let you see them. And then nothing. Yeah. Gets it just leaves you wanting. And yeah, it's just, and then the ending, this is the same problem I had with Wahala, which Another shameless plug. That's another episode we're doing on Book Solid for season three. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Um, there is. I'm not gonna. This is not like a like a. It's not a spoiler, but my one of my complaints mm-hmm. with it is I felt again like this book that the ending was very rushed compared to the pace of the rest of the novel, and I don't like that when you're reading something and they're like, oh shoot, thirty pages left. All right, everything pops off right now. Like it. It doesn't. It's not in in time keeping in time with the rest of the book and so it just feels very like it takes you out of it and I didn't understand the things that were happening at the end of the perishing like Aaron what was like okay I was so confused by Aaron okay so first let's say this I think it was a mistake to have this be like historical science fiction. <laughs> like I as you said, like Dion is trying to do too many things and I think the book would have been better if it had been like all set in 1930 yep. or really lean into the we are immortals, we kind of have to find our our like gang if you will like we have to find each other every time we're reborn i don't know if you've watched the movie old guard but it's basically this concept it's like you have this group of immortals and like they get reborn in like different societies across time and they yeah they they are like their own avengers team or whatever they're there to like protect the world or something but in so in this context like Towards the end of the book, we get the feeling, oh, there are other immortals. There's also this thing where an immortal can crack or, like, not be immortal. Like, it's weird. And we have this person at the end who is basically being like, aha, I'm going to suck the life out of you and make myself immortal. It's all of a sudden a mystery thriller. It came out of nowhere. I was like... Yeah, And also, I was really offended because this was a character who was in an iron lung. And this is, again, just very irresponsibly doing the disabled villain. You're just like, okay, you're gonna harp so much about this person being in an iron lung, and then you're gonna make him the villain for five pages at the end. 
I so I I thought he was only in the iron lung because he was trying to like increase the longevity of his life until he could get his hands on like Lou as she was cracking. Like I didn't think he had had any real medical need. It was more so him trying to like keep his body alive long enough to steal the immortality from Lou or whomever. Yeah, that that's fair, but we only discover that at the end. Again, like when he was first introduced, he was like, "Oh, I had polio and I need this iron lung." And that's Was that true? Or is that just what he told her? A journalist. It was probably not true, but it's mm-hmm. still like how he was presented. And I'm just like, I was just, I don't know, an extra thing to make me mad. I was like, it's he's not even satisfying as a villain. Yeah, he was very it was <laughs> it was in the last 30 pages. It was like, "Okay, let's reveal more information about the immortalists." but not really tell you anything. Um, make a villain where it's like a mystery thriller. She's trying to escape with her life. Bring in a character who's been here the whole book and has served no purpose, but suddenly it's very important. And then like have Lou, like it, it just was like all these things trying to be accomplished in the last, oh, a reveal that he's actually Lou's sister from her very first life, maybe. So wait, it was Lou white what? in her first life? <laughs> No, Lou has always been so black. I don't. So why was Vic not black? Is but he's not related to her. But that's what he said in his whole explanation was that, like they shared a mom, and the mom, like they took in that woman who was immortal, and she ch- didn't want her gift anymore, and she chose to give it to Lou. Oh yeah, I mean maybe, and like that's why she is the way she is. I was just confused, like. I was confused. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe Lou's original mom was white and her father was black, but like mm. she says that every time she's been alive, oh, she's yeah. been black, but she's been like different hues of like different colors of brown, basically. Which is also a strange thing to remember if you don't remember anything else about yourself. I'm like, oh yeah, I was always black. I was like, okay. And then the like, and that's the thing. That's why I have such a hard time with this. Cause like, I don't want to just bash it for the entire episode. It's just the good, the positives <laughs> are few and far between, but like the way she wrote about race and the complexities of racism and like the discrimination that different groups of people face. Like I, I, I was really enthralled by those parts. I felt like she wrote it so well and made it like there was a particular line it was actually really interesting i was wondering when she wrote this book because there were a few nods to the pandemic but this book came out in 2021 so i'm like it takes a long time for books to like a year at least from when it gets like picked up from a publisher so did she just like Mm -hmm. start writing in march 2020 well no but she could have added stuff in in the last edits of the book as well But there was a line that she said that was really interesting to me. And I think it was, we live in a time where people equate their opinion about a fact to the fact itself or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like, ooh, that is particularly particularly appropriate um, for this era. Because I think it's so true. Just the time that we're living in and how everything seems to be so polarizing. And I feel like some people just can't see fact as fact. Like everyone's going to have an opinion, obviously. But there are some things that are just straight up fact. And you can't argue with it, yet people do. And it's infuriating. Okay. The, my favorite part of the book is when she becomes a journalist and she's assigned to 
basically the death yeah. beat. And because she's the only black employee at the LA Times in this world, she is mostly assigned to black people and people of color who have died. So she goes and interviews their families and things. And I thought that was really interesting to kind of go through the process of like, what is her interview style? Like, what are the questions that interest her? What kind of story she pitches to her editor? And, you know, when she skirts around, like becoming more political, this idea of, you know, showing the repercussions of certain citywide decisions, like having Route 66 had the impact on the black community and the sort of, I don't know how to phrase this, tense relationship she has with her editor, because I feel this book really captures the idea of the white person who expects gratitude for treating others as human mm-hmm. beings. And so everyone, like not everyone is like outwardly super racist, although some people are, but the white people who are nice to her or nice to her other black friends are kind of like, well, now, you know, I, you owe me in a way. So you never get to criticize me or you never get to question my decisions or you should always just be really grateful that I'm giving you a chance when no one else would give you a chance. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was really Yeah, well it's done. the same thing with her relationship with Officer Adams. And I think Goldie even says it towards the end of the book. He was like, you do know I, I value her friendship, right? And Goldie was like, you don't value her. Like, you value what she can bring to you or something like that. But you do not mm-hmm. value her as a person. Because he doesn't, like, he acted like he had her best interest at heart. And he had that. I mean, he he was, I feel like he was, it's him using her she was a means to an end, you know, having that picture of them playing chess as a poster in the office so he can like show so he can quote unquote, like get the colored vote. That's basically what he was trying to do is like show that, oh, look, I can be for the people and I'm playing with this chess with this little black girl that, you know, her family abandoned because that's what they think happened to her. And then when she was arrested for something she didn't do, he was nowhere to be found. Even though, like, one mm-hmm. call from him could have gotten every – or one – he works there, for goodness sake. Like, if he just showed up when she called for him, that whole thing could have been fixed. And, yeah, like, it just – I felt like there was a parallel between her relationship with Officer Adams and her relationship with her editor. And ugh, Metal Wally. And – Oh, Metal – okay. Metal Wally, I mean, <laughs> Metal Wally is kind of a – again <laughs> – disabled villain so he's a white boy that she befriends uh when she's younger because he has like a back brace or leg braces or something which is why people call him like metal wally like the help it was a big thing in the 1930s and 40s like to like rectify scoliosis sometimes or these things and so everyone was picking on him but she was friends with him but then when they grow up he turns into a real asshole and He's also the the prototype for the conspiracy theorist and very anti-Semitic and all of that. I mean, his character kind of felt on the nose, but also represents this kind of thing where, like, you find people you think you have things in common with, like being othered as a child, and then you grow up and become completely different people. And he has the advantage of being a straight white man, and so he could 
go about being loud about his opinions and it didn't really affect him all that much. And he was the kind of straight white man who like any of his shortcomings are not his fault, but like the fact that Lou got the job he wanted or that she was advancing faster than him was not because she was more talented than him. It was because she was black and she, he was pulling like the affirmative action card on her basically. Yeah. Which I'm pretty sure did not exist also in the 1930s, so that's a bit anachronistic. Yeah, but yeah, he's just like, oh, it's, you know, they're trying to, like, show... Like, he he was saying she got the job at the Times because she was black and, like, they needed a colored... Uh, to have at least one colored person on staff, I believe is what he said. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was not great <laughs> with him. Yeah, and at the end, like... Okay, in another convoluted plot, he gets shot. Oh, yeah. Why? Uh, and then he dies, and then she goes to his funeral and decides to be like, well, he thought he was a good person, so I'm going to eulogize As him. As if he were a good the person. The way he thought. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, why are we getting this, like, life lesson here? Like, I, I don't, why didn't you just say no, you don't want to speak at his funeral? What was particularly <laughs> interesting to me about his behavior is he would constantly, like, even when they were in high school, they swapped, uh, I think she gave him a stick of gum for his eraser. And he lied and told the teacher that she stole the eraser from him. And so she had to, like, give the eraser back. And he was like, but we can still be friends, though. And even into their adulthood, he kept screwing her over, saying horrible racist stuff about her, or making these, like, backhanded comments, and then would still try to be her friend. Like, it was such a strange dynamic that, like, he wanted to be able to walk all over her, but then still, like, justify his behavior by want like by being friendly to her or expecting her to be friendly. he needed his one basically black friend. like to be like oh well i can't be <laughs> racist because i have a black friend but it's also like again this is why i have an issue with lou because she puts up with him and we never really see why like we don't see what she gets from this friendship we don't understand like if she's just like live or let live or if she's just like oh you know i've known him a long time like we don't know any of her rationale and her internal monologue is so she's so aware of like the she's so aware of how the color of her skin is impacting her life experiences. And she's so unwilling to, it's weird. Cause her thoughts don't match her actions. Like in her mind, I feel like she's really unwilling to kind of sit back and take everything that's happening and be like, okay with what's going on. Like in her head, she is like all for the rights and, equality that every person of color or any everybody should have in america that everybody should be treated equally but none of her actions really display that and again i think that could have been interesting because i do think a lot of people like feel a certain way but then for whatever reason never take action or don't feel like they can speak up or do things but we see lou actually you know confront her editor and say certain things to her friends Overall, she comes off as so Yeah, passive. she doesn't do much. She's not, no. yeah, she does not actively make, she doesn't actively make really many decisions throughout the book at all. Like, everything just kind of happens to her. I kind of found her annoying, to be honest. Oh, she was so annoying, but, like, she had no personality was the thing. I do want to talk about her friend, Esther okay. Lee. 
because Esther is white and her father owns a boxing gym that kind of is acts like a youth center, kind of like the boxing gym. Wait, uh, hold on real quick. Archie Andrews has in I Riverdale. Thought, I thought Esther was Chinese. No. No, she's the whole thing is she's white and as becomes an actress and takes only Asian roles. Are you sh- like I swore that that's like no, she always no, no, gets no. they're like oh they need an Asian actress so that's why they always choose me. Like that was the whole thing with her. Yeah. No, it was the whole thing of talking about Hollywood using white actresses to play Oh, I I missed that part somehow. Yeah, I swore her cuz her yeah. sister was in China. And she came back and, like, Lou was talking to her and, like, being all loud and, like, enunciating every word. And her sister was like, um, I speak English. Okay. I. Okay. That just shows uh, you how I don't. I really don't want to. <laughs> I don't really want to have to reread this book, but. Let me try okay, to Google so it. You go ahead I, and I mean, I guess. It. I guess that would be, like, a reading. But my read was. No, like, she. I guess is a white woman with slanted eyes or something like, or as someone who with a lot of makeup passes as Asian. Cause doesn't like in the, when we first meet her, that boy is like making fun of her at school. And she was like, he says like, go back to where you're from. And she was like, I'm from here, you idiot or something like that. Yeah. So she's an aspiring Chinese American actress. Okay. never mind. Okay. I, I completely. I just wanted that. to like know going forward because that would have changed a lot of how I feel about Esther if that was the case. Oh, okay. So yeah, this yeah. Okay. Well, let me tell you my alternate. Yeah, no, like <laughs> I think it's just I think it's more interesting about the book. So yeah, because also Lee Lee can be a white name, also like L E. Yeah, I, I know people who are not of like who are not Chinese who have that last name or not yet. Yeah. Okay, well, listeners, if you really want to, you can read the book and make up your own mind. But the way I read it was she was a white woman who was being hired for Asian parts, which I think I was justified in believing because this is something that historically has happened and historically has happened in this golden age of Hollywood, the 30s and 40s. My my reading of it, I believe, is more interesting because she would be like, yeah, I really want to be an actress and this these are the only parts I get. But like the tension in her relationship with Lou and all of that and her like basically doing Asian face. Um, but if she's actually Asian American, then obviously not. Like that's completely different. But the way I read her entire character from beginning to end was she was a woman who because of the state of the industry um had to take these parts or chose to take these parts because she wanted to be an actor and yeah the way that at the end when her father agrees to sell the boxing gym so that they can put in route 66 lou kind of has this narrative about oh well he wanted to help this community but like in the end like it didn't matter as much like he was ready to abandon the community it was fine i cool and i didn't think like i thought i don't know that it was necessarily a choice like i thought the government was just like eminent domain bam like you all have to get out of here kind of thing but i actually like because i obviously i read esther differently um and i i for the most part liked her character i was gonna say i actually think i would have rather 
no, okay, I was gonna say I'd really rather just read the whole thing from her point of view, but that's not necessarily true. But I think it would have been interesting to maybe delve a little bit deeper because to me, I thought that was the reason that Lou and Esther were drawn to each other was because they were like othered at their school, like okay. both being minorities and, you know, having to deal with certain experiences that like most of their classmates aren't or don't have to deal with. Um, yeah, I thought she was like an interesting character to have and I kind of wish we would have gotten a little more about her or from her thinking back she was not one of the immortalists because it was weird because at the end we suddenly realized like a lot of these people were like Goldie and um Letitia yeah and yeah yeah out of nowhere and Mr. Lawrence right and and um yeah what was his wife's name Miriam something like that I don't know if Miriam was, but definitely okay. Mr. Lawrence. It was very strange. And maybe that's like part of the genre. I know like speculative fiction is supposed to be a little more out there. And it's not, it doesn't need to be like crystal clear cut because it's not based in a world that is real. But I just feel like there are too many loose ends. And it was ultimately just way too confusing. And that detracted from the experience. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm always looking for more, like, Asian representation, and I completely walked past this. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, boy. And, yeah, there's just so much I don't understand. Like, I was thinking about that scene when Esther and her sister came to Lou's apartment, and they were listening to that radio show. I mean, that was an interesting scene, because the conversation between that woman and um, who was running the church and the man, I can't remember what his deal was, who was the guest. A lot of very, um, what's the word? That whole conversation I felt like was of like there, that lent to a deeper discussion, but ultimately like it didn't serve the plot. If that makes sense. I feel like my train of thought with this book is like following the same theme as the book itself where it just doesn't make any sense. Basically, I think we're pretty much in agreement that there were lots of interesting ingredients, but that the final dish was kind of a weird mishmash. Yeah, like there were so many elements where I'm like, ooh, this is interesting and this is a great conversation and ooh, I want to explore that idea more, but together it just didn't work. And I'm always going to be a tough audience whenever a book pitches itself as like musing about the human condition because that's kind of like my day job. So if a book is like, I will blow your mind about like what it means to be human and the reflections of an immortal on mortality. And also like, is the perishing, is the title related to anything? I, I mean, I get the pair of life, I guess, maybe. Like, cause that's, yeah. that is a huge thing is just like the way life ends. Like you can't really avoid it type of thing. But I mean, that's not a new idea <laughs> not to be shady. But also the perishing makes it sound like the Jaren makes it sound like an ongoing thing. Like we see someone perishing, which we kind of get the reveal at the end. They're like, Lou, you've been breaking. Like, that's why you have more flashbacks and all of these things. But we get that so late. That we're like, oh, I didn't have a feel that she was breaking. Yeah, like, like like I was saying, it just kind of all came to a head at the very, very end. And there was too much they were trying to do to wrap it up. Uh, I did have an idea about Sarah in the future that maybe the person 
that she tried to kill or that she was charged with murdering in the future was Vic. Like if he found her again to try to steal her immortality. Oh. I was wondering if it was a full circle moment there. Yeah. But I thought she killed That's him why I was just past. saying like, oh, I don't know now if that would make sense. But because was he still, I don't know how, like, how much immortality he had left when that happened. So like maybe mm-hmm. she ran away in the time it was taking his body to repair itself or something. But yeah, it is like, because the fact that we never find out who she was charged with killing made me wonder if we were supposed to just assume that Vic had caught up to her again. Or has she just like killed another Vic-like person? Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. But that's again something that could have been super interesting if we had had more of it. This idea that you know, there might be some people who are trying to siphon this power. I feel like more, yeah. Because we don't know why some people are chosen to be immortal and some people are not. But there was also, like, no real discussion of, like, the toll of immortality. Because, again, going back to the movie The Old Guard, they talk about that a lot, about, like, how some people want to die like after a certain Mm -hmm. point like being immortal is really horrible and i feel like that's something that comes up in a lot of vampire books and a lot of things about you know living forever isn't all it's talked up to be but we don't get that enough and we kind of are shoehorned in at the end being like of course vic wants to steal her power i'm like okay but if this was a maniacal plot all along, like, I wish we had seen it. Yeah, and, and I think that could have been the fact that there were 36 chosen ones originally, and now there's, what, only 11, I think, because Vic has gotten to so many of them. That could have definitely taken up more of the story and been more of the focus, I think. Like, along... And, and like you said, there should have been more things sprinkled in to clue us in to the fact that something was wrong with Lou. It just felt like she was just living yeah. her life until the very, very end. So, yeah, like, having that... That kind of creeping feeling that something's not right or feeling she's being watched or I I just think that could have made it a lot more interesting. I really need to know what the purpose of Jefferson's character was because like he like I said, he was important enough to make it into the synopsis that's on the flap of the book and then does not matter really at all in the scheme of things. And how did Aaron and Lou pop up at the same time? Like, we find out at the end that Aaron is the one who she saw in the alley when she was, like, brought into this version of herself. What was Aaron even doing there? Like, how did they appear in the same place at the same time? I honestly forgot who Aaron was. Yes, I told you. Like, he was absent (laughs) for so much of the book. And then at the end, he becomes, like, the harbinger of doom. Who? Who is Aaron? Yes, Uh, I told you I was listening to it on audiobook for most of it. And so she was, like, in her apartment. And she's like, oh, I see a shadow. And she turns around. She's like, it's Aaron. I was like, who's Aaron? Like, I had to pause it and think for a good while about who Aaron even was. I have to, this book is just poorly constructed. I mean, maybe if I read, like, Grace, which is Natasha Dion's other book, like, maybe it's very different. Like, this is, has just so poorly constructed. And I feel like, I know I said this earlier, I think that she has a lot to offer as an author. Um, some of the things that are explored, like, I, I think alone, I, we've said this a hundred times, that some of these themes alone could have made for a great novel. So I'm not saying I'm not going to, like, read any more of her work or 
mm-hmm. you know, that I think that she's not a good author. Actually, I don't think I'd ever say that about anybody because what do I know? But I just don't think that this book, like you said, was constructed very well. It didn't really achieve what it was what it set out to do. Yeah, and I mean, listeners to this podcast would remember like the first episode of season two. Uh, we read Anna Kay by Jenny Lee, and that book was garbage and terrible. This is not garbage. This is just a lot of good things that are not put in a convincing order. Um, so yeah, I don't think I don't think Dion is a bad author or like a bad writer or anything. I was just this was not a successful project in yeah. my eyes. And you know, it I feel like there's been episodes for book solid, like mostly in season one. This hasn't really happened much since then that we were going to cover, like it's happened once. We wanted to cover this one book and we started reading it and it was just horrible. And we ended up like removing it from the schedule because I didn't want to spend a whole episode just like bashing it. But since then, anytime we've had one that we don't like, we just keep it in because I mean, it makes it interesting. No one's going to love every book and I would never deter someone from reading it. Like if you're listening right now and you're like, Ooh, should I even read this book? Yeah. Because you haven't have an entirely different opinion than the two of us, you know? Exactly. And so you, for example, might be clued in that is Chinese American. <laughs> like everybody gets oh, something boy. different out of a book. And so I think, you know, it just makes for interesting content if we don't love everything that we cover all the time. So And that's it. And I mean I know at the beginning you're like, Oh, I'm sorry I suggested this, but that's kind of also the goal is that we need to take a chance mm-hmm. on books and you know, I think we both straddle this line of like we want to do popular books and books that are in the zeitgeist but we also want to like bring attention to books that maybe do not get as much Mm -hmm. hype as others because they're from a smaller publisher or just kind of an unknown author or something so I mean I don't regret us choosing this because I again I felt like I learned a lot of like non-fiction facts about LA in the 1930s and I was like oh I feel more I feel smarter now but but yeah so I don't think like absolutely if you think this might interest you please go ahead and read it I'm not going to tell you not to read it but for me it was not my favorite yeah that's I'm in agreement with you so do you have any recommendations for read-alikes or Maybe books are reading. Um, I mean, honestly, I haven't read a lot in this genre. Like, like I said, I think my favorite part about the book was the coming of age as a young black woman. So, if that's something that interests you, such a fun age by Kylie Reed would be perfect because, and no, it's not set in, in the 1930s, and it's not set in LA either. But she's like 24 or something, recently graduated from college, trying to figure life out, and it was just very relatable especially I think I read it like two years ago and I was like a year out of college at that point and it, mm-hmm. it's just it's it's very very relatable and there's a lot of um <laughs> it's just it's good that's all I'll say so I don't spoil it and I mean I just listened to a book that you're covering on book solid nobody's magic by destiny mm-hmm. Obert song and I feel like that also follows like the lives of three women and three women with albinism. So they do contend with racism, but also 
kind of tensions within their own black communities. And yeah, it's a book that's three novellas, basically. Yeah, yeah. Three short stories. And so I felt like in that way, the author was able to explore lots of different themes, but not try to make it into one coherent single narrative. And it worked out a lot better. Yeah, it did. That was a very, it was interesting because I I think going into it, I didn't expect it to be three solo stories. Like I thought it would be kind of intertwined and the, um, it would bounce between the perspective of each of the three characters. But I actually really liked this kind of short story aspect to it because you got like just enough from each to keep you wanting more, but you also felt like you had the answers you needed. And to be fair, they all exist in the same world. Yeah, that's true. Like they're all around Shreveport, Louisiana, and they kind of even say like, oh, the car mechanic that exists in yeah, story yeah. one like appears in all three stories. And yeah, it's really cool. Oh, and Such a Fun Age also um, kind of contends with the idea of um, well-meaning white people, kind of like what was going on with yeah. um, Lou and her editor and Officer Adams. Like that's also quite, that's a theme in such a fun age that I think is explored really well so yeah I would recommend Freshwater by Akwaike Mezi so if you're looking for someone who does like split narratives or multiple POVs really well Mezi is a master of that and Freshwater kind of follows a Nigerian girl moves to the states for university and kind of contends with kind of race in the United States in a different way, but also like her own personal traumas. And the conceit is that she was born with um, Obangye inside of her. So she has like Nigerian deities or Igbo deities. And so it's kind of like a way of talking about mental illness in a way and talking about trauma so the spirits speak in a we, like a first-person plural, and you have different facets of that. But it's just it's just so well done. This idea of having kind of a supernatural, magical realism type thing going on, multiple POVs, uh, and very, very engaging. So I really recommend that. If you want kind of more of the historical aspect that also deals with racism. Um, I really recommend The Street by Anne Petrie. I, you listeners will have heard my episode by now with Jack Davidson on that. I absolutely loved this book. And it's set in the 1940s and in Harlem. So opposite end of the country 10 years later. <laughs> but compared to The Perishing, I feel that The Street gives you such a vivid feeling of embodiment and introduces you to a world in a way that the perishing was kind of like look at all these facts the street is like let me bring you on the street and feel what like show you don't tell you yeah um the street is a masterpiece everyone should read it (laughs) but yeah bookmarking both of those (laughs) and oh i mean i guess i could also throw in i just started watching severance the show starring amongst other people um adam scott and it's this idea of 
when you're at work, you have no knowledge of your life and personality outside of work and vice versa. So this complete severance between the two. So looking at in the perishing, this idea of like being reborn and always having to kind of reinvent yourself and rediscover what it means to be human. I feel like severance does a real, so far, at least what I've seen does a really good, more meaningful job at exploring those themes. I've seen the trailer, but I haven't watched it. And I really enjoy Adam Scott, so I have to put that on the list. All right. Well, we've made it. We've made it like 50 minutes. We were so afraid. (laughs) We had a lot to um, unload, apparently, about this. (laughs) Okay. Well, Soraya, um, you've told us up top, but could you tell us again where can people find you? You can find us on Instagram at Booksolid Podcast. That is where we are most active. And you can find our show on pretty much all major podcast platforms. You can also find me co-hosting on Women of Questionable Morals. We're W-O-Q-M pod. Um, and that'll all be down in the show notes. So, yeah. You can follow me personally at Elena G. Mamorel on Twitter and on my website, elenagutsimamorel.com. If you want to hear me talk about Gilmore Girls. Again, check out Women of Questionable Morals. If you want to hear me interviewing underrepresented philosophers, check out Philosophy Casting Call. There are two full seasons that are up right now. You can follow this podcast at Bookshelf Remix everywhere and support us at ko-fi.com forward slash brpod. The transcripts to every episode are linked in our link tree and in the show notes. So until next time, text a friend from LA about the show. Text a journalist about the show. And don't forget to give your bookshelf a good remix. See you next season. Bye.